Okay, Sangha, I have an important announcement. The end of suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least the end of that one for now. So, and of course you should feel, you know, if you feel more comfortable wearing your mask, please continue to do so. Everybody understands it's a complicated situation. It's nice to see your faces. I knew you had them, but... (laughs) So, more about concentration. But you just had an important insight with that experience, right? The important insight was how good it feels when suffering ends. So imagine a mind uh, free from greed, aversion, and delusion. Even though the teachings are often talked about or framed in the terms of things like the end of suffering or, um, you know, this doesn't arise anymore. Um, What it really means is is that the mind is happy and at peace. Clear, wise, filled with wholesome qualities. So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit more about something that's been referenced in the the med hall and that we've been talking about in the practice meeting groups, which has to do with um, how to understand and relate to the situation where practice is difficult, where something's going on in the course of the practice. What to do then? So I know in a in the practice groups that I've had, there have been a number of conversations where, where I, as a, as a hawk-eyed Dharma teacher who loves to find a good hindrance, has said to somebody, that's a hindrance. <laughs> that's a hindrance. Right there, it's this one. And this is why. This is what's going on. So, uh, you know, some Dharma teachers have a, have a fascination with hindrances. You know, when... When we get together with some of our colleagues, sometimes we'll have like, uh, you know, hindrance story hour where we talk about some juicy hindrance that we've recently experienced and, you know, how it arose and how it displayed itself and then what happened when we became aware of it and how it opened into something else and how long it took us to realize it was there. (sighs) Which is... Ah, the human condition, right? The human condition. So, in the previous talk, I referenced the fact that uh, the Buddha's teaching says that all discretionary human suffering really stems from delusion, from wrong understanding, 
And when this word delusion is used, it's not just that, you know, we don't get what's going on. It's a much more active kind of misunderstanding where we actually think something is going on that isn't going on. It's not just that, you know, we haven't filled in all the dots. It's that the way we've filled in the the dots in our own mind, you know, the way we've done the, the crossword puzzle is actually wrong. So there's an active misunderstanding of the nature of reality and uh, of our own experience. For instance, we uh, misunderstand that... Uh, that things which are impermanent are permanent. We tend to attribute permanence to things. We don't really see at all the different levels of reality the truth of anicca, the truth of impermanence. And we think there's some sort of permanent self there that's in control of what's going on. Uh, You know, the... Uh, song of myself, <laughs> uh, me and, you know, either the good me or the bad me or the ne- me that needs an improvement or the, you know, me that's different from the me that used to be and the, and there's the one that's going to be in the future and just a whole relationship to this concept of self that has a kind of fixity to it and an idea that there's, you know, kind of like... Uh, some little agent in there that's doing it all or that it's all happening to. And then we also uh, fail to see that any conditioned experience can't supply permanent satisfaction or happiness. Right? We, We kind of have this idea in our head that, you know, if I could get like this and this, and this, and this, and like put it all together in one package. You know, I'd, I'd get everything set up, and then it would be like permanently groovy. <laughs> and this often ties into self-view too. I mean, um, I have a lot of compassion actually for young people in particular now that are being uh, growing up in this environment where it's just a, a complete hall of mirrors. It's all about how you, how you are and how you present yourself and, you know, your brand and how you need to, you know, present yourself and, you know, uh, how you need to be approved of and, you know, people need to upvote you and... That's... It's very interesting to me that now one of the most frequently stated uh, future vocational uh, aspirations um, for young people, younger people, younger than this room, but probably, is uh, influencer. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an influencer. (laughs) Think about it. It's completely void of content. Isn't it? (laughs) Oh, we're a mess, you know? (laughs) So, 
we're deluded. So the fundamental delusion can, can take a lot of forms. So it can be in our heart and mind in a lot of uh, different ways besides just you know vocational choices. And when uh, states arising out of delusion are present, they can cloud or obscure what is otherwise the radiant, pure mind. And they can actually cover over wholesome states, beautiful states of mind, and kind of crowd them out of the mind. So we all experience these states which are called hindrances. And these forms of suffering are described in different kinds of ways. And the Buddha was a great list maker, which is probably why the teachings still exist now. So he just wasn't somebody who had like a lot of personal power and a radiant personality and you could feel incredible love when you were around him and all of that. But he, what was unique about him was he was able to actually take his insights, take his understanding and articulate it to people in a way that was very um, analytical and concrete. Now he would talk to different people in very different ways. If you read the suttas, you know, he could talk to people in a, in a really simple way. And Tara was talking the other night about um, one of the monks who, you know, wasn't cognitively developed, but he really wanted to do the practice and how the Buddha basically gave him a practice that was suited for him. So the Buddha would talk to people in a lot of different ways. He would give them a lot of different practices depending on their their temperament and his understanding of what their starting point was. <clears throat> and he also offered his teachings generally in a way that was very specific. He, so he organized it analytically. If you look at the structure of the Buddha's teachings, imagine you're you know, look, looking at a, a document and there's a lot of drop-down lists. You, know? <laughs> you go to the Four Noble Truths, then the Four Drop-Down. Then you go to the Eightfold Path. You know? It's the next drop-down. From, <laughs> from, uh, then you go into uh, you know, Wise Concentration, and then there's a drop-down list there about the, you know, the Four Material Jhanas. And you go to uh, um, the Three Unwholesome Roots, and then there's, at some point there, there's a drop-down list, and it goes into the Five Hindrances. Boom, 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 boom. A lot of bullet pointing, right? So that's part of the reason that we have the teachings now, because it was so specific and so well organized. And what a human mind that this person, through their own self-effort, could actually undertake these trainings and this deep investigation of their own heart-mind and not only transform that, but actually be able to figure out how to say it in a way that was transmissible and that would be transmissible through the centuries. 
I sometimes think that uh, one of the the great accomplishments of humanity is that it actually hasn't lost the transmission of the Buddha Dharma. When you think about what had had to be involved going back to 2,600 years ago, you had to have generations of people who heard the teachings, practiced the teachings, transformed their minds, taught other people who heard the teachings, practiced the teachings, transformed their mind, who taught, right? Some of the people who transformed their minds were monastics who were completely dependent on the lay community for everything. So the lay community was very woven into this. They were the ones that generation after generation after generation were actually offering the material support to the monastics. And in addition, from the ranks of the lay community came people who became the monastics. One thing about being a monastic is you don't (laughs) self-replicate. If you know what I mean. At least in this tradition. So, so how amazing. How amazing. So we have a, a huge debt of gratitude to, um, in particular, um, Asian countries that have been the preservers and practicers and sustainers of the, the Dhamma. And now here we are in Barry M.A. doing the, doing the practices that... Uh, the Noble One offered so long ago. So that's my devotional flight of thought. So now let's get into the five hindrances and what they are. So we've all experienced these many times. And oftentimes we have a particular pattern when hindrances arise. For instance, the mind might have a particular propensity towards craving or towards aversion. So some minds might uh, easily get lost in doubt. Others might be prone to uh, restlessness and worry or prone to sloth and torpor. We all have all of them, and yet it's uh, also the case that sometimes we have a speciality. You know, if it's a strong speciality, it actually tends to be kind of like a personality feature. So, so you know, in the Dharma teacher cloakroom, you know, sometimes there there's these these conversations along the line of, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, you're an aversive type. Oh no, yeah, yeah, you're a craving type. And, you know, we're kidding each other, and it's also true. (laughs) So, and you know, in your own relationships, you can have this. So, for instance, there there are people who are, you know, strong craving type, strong greed tendencies of mind. And, uh, you know, when two people like that wind up together, then they, they kind of like, they egg each other on, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, we can afford a bigger house than that, you know? It's like, and we could take the vacation too. It's like, uh, uh, and then, 
Then there's the uh, aversive type uh, in relationship with, with the craving type. I think it would be great if we had a bathtub. I just love bubble baths. It's just so refreshing. I could imagine being in there with candles lit and maybe a beverage in there. Spouse says, bathroom's too small. (laughs) And the other spouse says, it would be so great to have a bath, especially on winter nights. You know, it warms you up like nothing else. You know, maybe we could just put an extension on the house (laughs) and we'd have more room. You know, and if we did that, we could take that front hall closet and we could really expand it. You know, and if we did that, as long as, you know, we had people coming in to do that, you know, maybe we could put in dormers and it would bring a lot more light in from above. And then the other spouse says, you know, the economy's heading into the shitter. <laughs> but then the co- house would be really comfortable and we would feel good about being at home. And we could have friends come out over and we could, you know, start having parties again because we'd have more space. Yeah, but we could catch COVID. <laughs> Okay, so maybe you've never had these kinds of conversations and these these mixed marriages, but anyway, we have our type, you know. We're, we 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 have our patterns, our patterns of hindrances, and uh. so anyway, when we start working with our minds, then we come across all of these hindrances, and sometimes there can be periods of time where we may uh, have, have the experience of having all of them seemingly happening at once or at least in close proximity to each other. So we call, call that kind of kiddingly uh, multiple hindrance attack. But when it's happening, it's not necessarily funny, right? Because the mind is kind of going from wanting to not getting to now it's like frustrated and kind of mad and now it doesn't want to do anything and kind of digs its heels in and decides it's a good time to go to sleep. <laughs> then it goes, it goes to sleep, goes to sleep, wants to take a nap, and then it's like, well, doubt arises. Well, why should I even be here if this is just what I'm, is going to be happening? I'm going to be sleeping the whole time. Then maybe you go, well, okay. What can I do? Well, you know, I think, I think I'd wake up if I just, you know, got my cell phone and, like, got a little more stimulation. And you see, see how it goes? <laughs> kind of like one opens the door to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Multiple hindrance attack. So what's the effect of the presence of these states? So the mind is actually in a state of delusion and it's suffering, even though it might not necessarily realize it is, right? Because some of these hindrances and some of their forms can actually be pleasant. I remember once, ah, yeah, it was at the first 10-day retreat I did where I 
misread the brochure and didn't know they didn't have coffee. I remember being there and, and about the third day being there and my body and my mind were just so uncomfortable and painful and having the thought arise in my mind. You know, I bet if I sat here and just like remembered that vacation in Maui and then thought about how I could have that happen again this year, I could spend a whole hour doing that. And then they'd ring the bell. (laughs) Anybody have a thought like that? That would be your craving mind arising, right? So, when the hindrances are there, usually mindfulness is weak. Because if mindfulness was strong, either the hind- very strong, the hindrances wouldn't be there, or they would be there, but they wouldn't be interfering because the mind would be seeing them very rapidly and deeply. So it wouldn't be derailed by their presence. Uh, But in the absence of mindfulness, the mind actually lacks clarity and it lacks pliancy. So when it's like that, it's hard to train the mind, right? And this is what we're doing here. We're, We're training attention as well as other wholesome things. So the mind can't be easily trained and developed if a strong hindrance is present. And this is because awareness um, is lost. It's absorbed and controlled by the hindering state. So have you noticed this? Like if you're having a strong hindrance and you try to go to the breath, how does that go? You get any kickback? Kick back out. (laughs) I remember when when I was a kid, I had really bad eyesight, but I didn't know it until I was about fifth grade. (laughs) Nobody knew it because I was just kind of, you know, born that way. But, you know, my, my vision was like bad enough to be technically legally blind but I didn't realize this till like 10th grade because when they had the uh, the eye exams in school where you had to read the chart with the uh, the E, and older people will remember this one, they start with the big E and then other letters and you had to say what they were and how they were turned and everything. I heard exam and I thought, I ain't fucking no exam. So I... I memorized <laughs> what all the other kids were saying, right? Because in my family, you wouldn't like go home and say you like failed an exam. Anyway, deluded, <laughs> completely deluded. But anyway, so I, I didn't know I couldn't see, and nobody else knew I really couldn't see very much. But I can remember playing hopscotch, which is this this game kids used to play. They would like draw. Uh, chalk squares on sidewalks and then it was like a hopping game you know it'd hop on one foot and then you would hop on two feet and one foot and there's all kind of 
favorite roles. And I was usually the youngest kid, and I couldn't see the lines. <laughs> so the, the whole thing about the game was you're not supposed to step on the lines. Because if you stepped on the lines, then you got, you know, that was it for you. Mm. I was hindered in my ability to do hopscotch because I lacked clear seeing. And thus you are hindered in your ability to do your practice if your mind is made opaque by the hindrances. I always used to insist I deserved another chance. My older sister was full of forbearance, <laughs> usually. And, but that's really what it takes, right? In doing this practice, it takes another chance. Well, fortunately, there are many, many mind moments for you to practice in. So you have some mind moments where the mind is opaque, the mind is not really cooperating with what's going on, no problem. What does it mean? It means you just need to recognize the hindrance, be able to recognize the hindrance, and then figure out how to relate to that. Because you need to address that if it's really strong in order to do the practice. All right, so that's task number one, is recognizing the hindrance in as matter-of-fact kind of way as you can. Just recognize it. Name it. Note it. So, let's talk about this. You know, it's a interesting thing when we sit down to practice because one of the first things that we notice generally to our dismay is how wild the mind is. And I, I referenced that the, the other night. Because if you could just like walk in and sit down, turn attention to the breath and stay there, there would be no need for you to be doing any of this. But it's it's because um, the mind is not yet developed fully in that way, the practices of benefit. Because it's training. So this can kind of be humbling and discouraging. So an important piece of this is normalizing the presence of hindrances not in the sense of indulging them or not taking on the task of finding skillful relationship and working with them, but just normalizing them when they're present. So if we identify with these, which are just states after all, if we identify with them, as some sort of evidence that we're hopeless as practitioners, you might as well hang up your zafu. 
right? Because you're not going to have the faith in yourself in the process to really be able to do it. So you have to get past that woe is me, I'm so bad kind of mentality where the the self-sense is actually uh, relating to this experience is if it's evidence of some sort of particularly fatal flaw that you alone have. It's not, it's just mind states. Just mind states that are common to everybody. So everybody who's uh, succeeded as practice has learned to recognize these in their mind stream and has found wise relationship to them. And you could almost say the path of practice is this whole process of learning how to bring what is already wholesome and developed in ourselves to what is suffering and underdeveloped or undeveloped. So that means make an acquaintance with it. So let's talk about the recognition of these. And I'll describe them so that you might be able to cross the threshold of this first step of mastery, which has to do with recognition and non-identification with them. So the first hindrance is sense craving. Sense craving. So this is the mind that wants, that desires, that's oriented towards getting and keeping. Finding something pleasant and glomming onto it or, you know, ginning up or manufacturing something pleasant. So in our concentration practice, this can manifest as looking for something more interesting or more satisfying than just the plain old breath. Or sometimes it manifests as being with the breath, but then you're in there and like you're trying to fix it, you know, improve on it, make it more pleasant or, right, you're kind of like getting into trying to improve upon it. especially improve upon it in the direction of making it more pleasant and gratifying. That's often sense craving. But, you know, sense craving can be in relationship to a lot of things, right? It could be something like the what came up for me at that early retreat about, you know, deciding, well, I think I'll just sit here and fantasize. That would be pleasant, you know? Or... You know, maybe I I won't go to the sitting. Maybe I'll just, I don't know, go see if I can find interesting animals in the woods. And Not that there's anything wrong with interesting animals in the woods. There's a lot of them around here. The animals think you're very interesting, by the way. They were on their own around here for a couple years and then you came back, they're like, oh, they're back. <laughs> it's them again. <laughs> but sense craving, like the mind wanting something. So how does that pertain to working, say, with the breath? 
when we're, we're working with concentration with the breath, we've chosen what we're going to attend to, right? We've chosen what we're going to attend to. And then there arises in the mind, yeah, but... That would be interesting or shiny or, you know, that would be, right? So that's when you see it, like the temptation to, where the, you can almost see in the early stages, like the, the mind uh, generating this impulse to kind of like look around. What could, what could it be? What could I get, you know? Or thinking about something like, well, maybe if I get out of the hall early, I'll be at the front of the lunch line. Then I'll get the good seat, you know? It's, So the, uh, a remedy for sense craving when it's present is the practice of letting go, of renunciation. You know, the practicing of contentment with what, what is there. So then um, the next of the hindrances of, is aversion. So that's kind of the flip side of sense craving. And this is the mind that doesn't want. It doesn't like, it finds fault. Either it wants to escape the experience or attack it because it doesn't like it. So there's often unpleasantness there. So this is kind of like the exterminator mind, in some cases when it's the the angry version. Or sometimes it's the fearful version where the mind just kind of wants to withdraw. So so this can come up in practice as something like criticizing how it's going, criticizing ourselves, criticizing the temperature of the room, Finding the experience uh, of being with this unsatisfactory breath as boring or stupid or meaningless. Um, you know, what will I say to my friends when they ask how it went? You know, <laughs> both anger and fear are aspects of this. Oh my God, what if I go home and I have nothing to show for it? Well, what would you have to show for it with this kind of process? It's hard to pull it out of your pocket, and right? Look, hundred rests in a row. <laughs> You'll have to take my word for it. <laughs> so you know, a remedy or an antidote to aversion is meta. Meta, and another. Uh, thing that can be really useful in aversion and training the mind to not indulge it is to recognize that it's actually suffering. And that's also true with craving because, as I said earlier, sometimes the mind doesn't recognize that it's suffering. But when you think about it, okay, you're here on your vacation, you know, you trotted yourself off to bury to live in a dorm with the bathroom down the hall, and you're doing this hour after hour. Hmm. What does it mean? What does it mean to have done that? You've made a choice of renunciation, so now 
you've got a motivation or an intuition or hope that something higher can develop or open in you, stay the course, my Dharma friends. Stay the course. Do not be seduced. Okay, hindrance number three, sloth and torpor. So these are two different, somewhat different things in my understanding of them. So in this situation, though, the mind is heavy, it lacks energy. Uh, There could be a lack of physical energy, too, as well as mental. Um, Whole system's kind of inclined to go offline and not really engage with what's going on. So sloth, the first one of these, you ever seen a sloth? Pictures of a sloth? Some videos of sloths or, you know, people watch them as a way to relax. Talk about slow walking, you know. It's like a sloth, you know, is moving to get on a branch. It's like this. Right? So you get the picture. Sloth. Right? It's built into them. For us, sloth is more like lazy ass. You know, just not really wanting to exert ourselves that much. Now, torpor is a somewhat different thing. Because torpor tends to be more physical. And... This is the mind that tips towards sleep repeatedly, right? It's just kind of dull. It doesn't have much observational power. It kind of like forgets what it's doing and supposed to be attending to in the middle of it. It can go all the way into sleep, of course. Um, So the thing with uh, torpor is you don't want to indulge it, but you you don't want to condemn it as... A baddie, baddie, baddie. It's bad if you indulge it. And having said that, there's nobody who's ever done these practices that won't have to repeatedly deal with the mind being heavy and moving towards sleep or some dreamlike state. It's just part of the territory. So don't don't worry about it. But you do, but you do need to counter it because. You don't want to spend eight days, you know, sleeping on the cushion. Then you go to bed at night and you can't sleep. Sleep. So sometimes uh, torpor can be there when there's an imbalance between concentration, this relaxed, tranquil, calm quality of mind and energy. If there's more calm than there is energy. And so the, the two are not in balance, and so it tips the whole system in the direction of going underwater. And isn't that what that feel like, feels like? When you're right at that horizon where you're, you're with the breath, you're being with the breath, and they start to feel relaxed, and you feel relaxed, and you feel relaxed. Just relaxed. So, 
then you <laughs> right so then you grab yourself you pull yourself up out of the water because <laughs> you're underwater you're underwater right you're in dreamland but you're not even really swimming in dreamland it's more like you know you're floating it's like a back float in a semi-conscious state okay so you don't want to indulge it but it just can happen so more energy this could involve uh, direct countering this, doing things like standing up, opening your eyes, doing faster walking outside to rouse energy, you know, having a cup of black tea, right? See, you want to work with the mind in the direction of encouraging it towards clarity and an energized kind of presence that is also calm. Committed effort born from wholesome motivation. So then we have restlessness and worry. And this is where a lot, there can be a lot of physical energy to the point where the mind and the body are quite agitated. You know, sometimes it can feel almost like you've got ants in your pants, right? You're sitting down, you're trying to be still, but you can feel like the body wants to move. And maybe if the body doesn't move, then maybe the mind starts to move and it starts to kind of like bounce around, fly around. It's like, here's the breath, boing! Let me find the breath, boing! Right? Restlessness. So this is a case where there's actually too much energy relative to the amount of calm. So... Here you can bring the energy down by fast walking or, or something like that. Which is an interesting thing, right? To see if there's a way you can actually discharge some of it. It might help for a while, for instance, to open the perceptual field and, and try not to hold on to the breath too tightly, but let yourself have a bigger uh, sphere of awareness and let the mind kind of bounce from one thing to another, right? Imagine if you had a wild horse in a corral, right? And it had a lot of energy and it was kind of skittish and you'd, you'd, anybody got near it, it kind of like kicked and it would around, you know, and bump up against the corral, side of the corral. You wouldn't go over to that, that horse and just like try to throw yourself up on its back and ride, <laughs> ride it around, right? You'd re- recognize, okay, this has got to calm itself down. Now, how could, how could I support this calming down of the restless energy in the mind? Now, sometimes if the mind is just re- restless, you can go to the, the samadhi practice to go to the breath practice, and it will actually calm the mind down. That's the paradox. But sometimes not. Sometimes you have to do something else, open up a little more. And of course, uh, worry tends to arise when the mind is engaged with speculative thought about what might happen in the future in particular, right? It's worry, 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 worry. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What if I can't do this? You know, what's the next sitting going to be like? What's going 
going to be like when I go home? What if I can't succeed at this? What if I... All those pleasant kinds of thoughts. So there's often a lot of thinking with worry. Future-oriented thinking. And a lot of speculation in the thinking. You know, and sometimes uh, it can... Worry can arise in relationship to something that we've done or not done that we sit down and go on retreat or around the cushion uh, comes up in our mind and we have this recognition. Oh, bad one. What was I thinking, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, why did I do that? That was so stupid. Or, you know, right? So um, remorse, which can be quite wholesome, could come up on retreat. So there again, you know, metta could be a useful practice to do. Metta or self-compassion. And the, the last of these is what's called skeptical doubt. There's a lot of thinking usually with skeptical doubt. And here the mind's trying to figure, figure something out. And it does that by asking a lot of repetitive, uh, circular questions that can't be answered because there's no available information to ask it, answer it. But they just keep kind of like going on, around and around and around and around. The mind gets agitated, and often it opens the door to other hindrances. So what would be an example of that? Mm. I wonder if this is really what the Buddha taught. I think that lay people, they can, they can develop samadhi, but I'm not sure if their samadhi would be like as good as a monk's. But I don't know, maybe if you were in Asia, and you practice there, then you could get the real teachings. But I don't know, you know, if you have a Western mind, could you really do it anyway? (laughs) And I don't know. I think that person on 10% Happier said something about distraction. But I can't remember what it is. Hmm. I bet if I had that book right now, I could look it up. Right, you see what's going on? It's kind of like doubt, speculative doubt. Doubt. So... The usual recommendation relationship relationship to doubt is if you can actually formulate a question, you could ask a teacher. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, the instruction would be to actually turn your attention to something you can know in real time for yourself. Something of a physical nature, usually. Something that's sensory. Like how you're, 
how the bottom of your feet feel touching the earth right now. Right? Regrounding in something that you can observe, withdrawing attention from something that you don't. Uh, Can't really answer. Okay, so now I've just described the five hindrances. So now are you ready for audience participation? Now that I can see your faces. Are you willing to participate in a non-anonymous poll? (laughs) By show of hands, we'll have a hindrance poll. All right, so... How many of you have experienced these states during the days you've been here? I'm looking for who hasn't. (laughs) I'm going to bow down at your feet. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you which hindrance has been predominant, and we'll go through these one by one. So when you hear the one that you recognize as your hindrance, I'd like you to raise your hand. Sense craving. Be proud. Be proud of your hindrance. (laughs) Be proud. This is the first step towards becoming conscious. All right. Aversion. You can be proud of aversion. It's all right. Uh, Sloth and torpor. A popular one. Okay. Restlessness and worry. Okay. Skeptical doubt. Okay, the intellectuals. <laughs> uh, now, which one are you seeing the least? So we'll go through the same list. So if, if this hindrance is the one you've seen the least, raise your hand. If you've seen sense craving the least, raise your hand. If you've seen aversion least, raise your hand. Okay? Sloth and torpor least. Oh, the awake people. (laughs) Skeptical. uh, Restlessness and worry least. Skeptical doubt the least. Oh, got some faith followers. Okay. So now that uh, we've got some familiarity about what these are, and you know about the importance of recognizing the states when they're, they've become instructive, obstructive, I'm going to give you some general principles for practicing with them. I just said a little bit about specific remedies or ways to counteract them, but now I'm going to uh, give more instruction about how to work with them when they're present. Now, And these <coughs> instructions are a little bit different than how you would relate to hindrances if you were doing Vipassana practice. And I know some of you have uh, Vipassana practices and in some cases will establish one uh, ones which have their own set of practice rules, right? So this is a different practice. So there are somewhat different practice rules for working with hindrances when you're doing concentration. So I'm going to fill you in on what those rules actually are. 
So if there's a strong hindrance in the mind, it's usually skillful to address it in some way and to mitigate it before you turn to the meditation object. Right? You come into a sitting and your mind is really just crotchety. You don't really want to do it. Now, if the mind is really um, experiencing like strong anger or frustration, the chances of being able to stay with the meditation object like the breath are slim because the mind is actually tinged with aversion. So then the attention that's going to the meditation object doesn't have much mindfulness in it, right? So you're going to the meditation object with unwise attention. So, you know, see what you can do to shift the inner inner environment. Maybe do some metta. You know, maybe give yourself a motivational speech. <laughs> maybe recognize the hindrance directly and point out that, you know, this is going to get in the way here if I, you know, just keep double, doubling down on this, this way of proceeding, right? So see if you can do something there with it. Then, then you turn to the the main object. So that's at the beginning, say, of a set or a walking period. would be true as well. So what happens if you're with the breath and then a hindrance arises? So here is where the concentration rules are a bit uh, different. In samadhi practice, the general rule is not to turn to the hindrance, but incline the mind to turn away from it if it's possible. You know, just to, to not, not get mixed up with it, to not get messed up with it. If it's something that's kind of like going on in the background, and it's kind of like low grade, but you're aware that it's there, but it's not really getting in the way, just ignore it. Just stay, stay with your object. And, you know, you can also, and this is true right at the beginning of a sit, when you're thinking about what the practice rules are, you can actually incline the mind to discard it should it arise. Like it should be, if it does arise and it's like there, now it's like a more uh, predominant kind of experience, you can incline the mind to just be willing to say, "Mm, no thanks, not going there, not doing that, right? Let, letting it go when when it arises. So that, that's the second strategy. The first is kind of like ignore. The second is, okay, you, you do acknowledge it, and you kind of like try to whisk it out. Right? So this is especially true in, uh, in the case of distracting thoughts. Because very often these hindrances arise in the form of thought. Right? Have you noticed that? It's thought, and then sometimes it's body stuff, but it's a lot of, often, very often thinking. Say, saying to yourself at the, the, the beginning of a sit, if you, you recognize that you have a, a, a pattern of getting involved or absorbed in a particular kind of thoughts that uh, contain a hindrance, that at the beginning of the sit, you, you say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to form an intent, Intention. To the extent possible, when this pattern of thought arises, I'm going to let it go. 
I'm not going to give it any juice to the extent that I can. Button it go. So that's discarding. So this letting go of non-dominant hindrances is the the major strategy in concentration practice, ignoring and letting go of. And that's because you understand that concentration continues to be strengthened by wise attention. And if that becomes established, wise attention becomes strong, it will undercut the hindrances. But, and they will f- not flourish, and, and they will not arise past a certain point. But you've got to get through that zone where they are there, and they're potentially competitive, or at certain times you might have the experience they're actually the dominant thing that's going on, and you can't ignore them and you can't let them go. So then what? They're there, they're established. So if the hindrances are strong and they've displaced the meditation object, this calls for a different strategy. So here's where it's skillful to set aside the practice tools and instructions for samadhi practice, which is the let go of everything else but this, ignore you know, um, let go if it arises, and actually do more of a Vipassana-style practice where you actually intentionally acknowledge the presence of this experience and you choose to turn towards it. Ah, sense craving, I see you. Ah, this is sense craving. This is wanting. Oh, this is a hindrance. So you actually turn towards it and investigate. What is it like when sense craving is strong? What's it feel like in the mind? My experience of sense craving, when sense craving is very strong, there is a kind of of concentration there. Not wise concentration, but it's more like this. Oh, object. Oh, my pretty. Right? The, just that, in that sense in the body of wanting, you know. When it's really strong, it's almost like there's a, at least for me, almost like a tractor beam of mm, yeah, wanting. Right? So you would be turning the mind towards knowing this uh, expression of the hindrance in, in real time with an interested mind that contains mindfulness. And, you know, in Vipassana practice, This is a primary strategy for working with hindrances, the strategy of working with investigation to turning towards towards it. So this is a tool, this way of investigating a hindrance is a tool in your toolbox. Then the other tools in your toolbox are employing the remedies some of which I mentioned when I went through the list. So, you know, and it's true for all of these inferences. If you attend to them wisely, then when they're there, at some point they're going to weaken and pass away. And in fact, you know, at some, they, they will weaken and pass away at some point, even if you attend to them unwisely. However, if you attend to them unwisely, then 
they're more likely to be followed by other hindrances. <laughs> but if you attend to, learn how to attend to them wisely when they're there and they're predominant, and they've made uh, working uh, in a samadhi style with the breath uh, very difficult or impossible, you're opening the door to having uh, more mastery because you're learning how to directly remove, directly remove potential obstacles to concentration. So this is, this is the middle zone, right? Enough wise concentration, there aren't hindrances. Enough wise concentration, there aren't hindrances. The Buddha talks about them in terms of adventitious defilements, meaning they arise under certain circumstances. So when they arise, then they're there to, if they can't be discarded, if they can't be ignored, they're there to be met in some kind of way and and work with, either with a remedy or by investigation. Or If other things fail, just by saying, you know what, I think I'll bag it and go for a regular walk for a while. (laughs) Right? So this is a very interesting area of practice, and this is really where you you gain gain mastery. So happy, happy hindrance, <laughs> happy, happy hindrance to you. All right, so let's uh, sit together. We do this practice of dedicating the merit after sittings and Dharma talks because of our understanding of interconnectivity and our our understanding that wholesome actions of body, speech, and mind have uh, karmic potency. May the wholesome action that we've taken today of offering and hearing a Dhamma talk be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.